0: Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to introduce Tony Kushner, Pulitzer Prize winner and also winner of virtually every other prize offered for drama in recent years. His double play, Angels in America, is the most significant and respected theater work produced in the last 15 years. One does not know whether he is more interested in angels or in America, but they both are there. Kushner is really a prophet. And what could confirm this fact more than this season's Homebody, Kabul? Which opened within days of 911. I was fascinated to discover that Tony Kushner cites as his first job being switchboard operated operator at the United Nations Plaza Hotel. Surely, uh, Columbia, get through. Yes, all right. <laughs> Obviously, he forgets nothing. He is also taught In the Princeton Theater and Dance Program. In fact, he has done so much that I hope you will join me in welcoming, and don't welcome him yet because I have another sentence that I want to put in, (laughs) in welcoming Tony Kushner. The format of the evening is very simple. He is going to read for 10 10 ish minutes, and then uh, I will ask our great expert panel here to ask him questions. Look look at Emily. Uh, The panel is Tamsin Wolfe from the English Department who teaches modern drama here. Michael Cadden who is director of the theater and dance program. And Emily Mann from McCarter Theater. And now you may welcome Tony Kushner. (laughs)
1: I'm going to read a a couple of things. Um, The first are two monologues. uh, Well, the section of the opening monologue from uh, my new play, Homebody Cobble. It's it's spoken by a British housewife in 1998 in London. I won't do the British accent, and you'll have to imagine me as a housewife, Um, which some people have difficulty doing and other people not. Um, and uh, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what she's talking about because it's a, it's a very long monologue and I'll only read a little bit of it. Um, she's a, sort of a strange uh, person. She um, has uh, a habit of going to used bookstores and, and gathering up um, uh, reading material that uh, seems neglected that people haven't uh, paid much attention to, remaindered books, outdated texts. And in 1998, she's uh, uh, discovered a 1965 guidebook to the city of Kabul, and she's been reading it, and she finds herself deeply moved um, by uh, what she reads about the city. Uh, At the same time, she's about to uh, – all of which, of course, is now completely out of date, because it's a description of a city that, in 1998 – essentially uh, no longer um, exists, certainly not in the condition that it existed in 1965. She's also throwing a party for her husband, who's an electronics engineer. Uh, they have a sort of troubled marriage. And she's been uh, out in London shopping for hats uh, for the party. And she wanders into a, a, a hat shop that she sort of dimly remembers uh, as being an Afghan hat shop. And uh, this is i a, a, – I'll pick up in the monologue um, – She just sits and talks to the audience for an hour. Um, uh, And this is what happened, and it's all there is to my little tale, really. The hats were in a barrel which could be seen through the window, puppets hung from the ceiling, carved freestanding figurines, demiurges, attributes, symbols, carved abstractions representing metaphysical principles critical to the governance of perfect cosmologies now lost to all or almost all human memory. Amber beads big as your baby's fists, armor plates like pangolin scales strung on thick ropey catgut cordage meant to be worn by rather large, rather ferocious men, one would imagine, or who knows. Hideous masks with great tusks and lolling tongues and more eyes than our usual mind's eyes, I suppose, and revolving wire racks filled with postcards depicting the severed heads of the Queen and Tony Blair. Well, not severed necessarily, but with no body appended. Glaswegian A to Z guides and newspapers in Arabic and Urdu and push-to video cassettes of rock balladeers from Banaras. Well, why go on and on? Sorry, I'm sorry. We've all been in these sorts of shops, haven't we? No bigger than from here to there. As if a many-cameled carrot than, having roamed, uh, uh, having roamed the not yet the entire post-colonial, not yet developed world, crossing the borders of the rainforested kingdoms of Kwashiorkor and rickets and untreated gum disease and high infant mortality rates, gathering with desperate indiscriminateness—is that the word?—on the mud-pitted, unpaid trade route, its bits and boodle had finally beached its great, heavy, no longer portable self in a narrow coal scuttle of a shop on. Here, here, caravanseride here, in the developed and overdeveloped and over-overdeveloped, paved, wasted, now deliquescent, post-first-world, post-modern city of London. All the camels having flopped and toppled and fallen here and died of exhaustion, of shock, of the heartache of refugees, the goods simply piled high upon their dromedary bones, just where they came to rest and set up shop atop the carcasses, and so on. I select ten hats, thread my way through the musty heaps of swag and thrown away and offcast and godforsaken, sorry, sorry, through the merchandise to the counter where a man, an Afghan man, my age, I think, perhaps a bit older, stands smiling, eager to ring up my purchases and make an imprint of my credit card. And as I hand the card to him, I see that three fingers on his right hand have been hacked off following the line of a perfect clean diagonal from middle to ring to little finger, which the last of the three fingers in the diagonal cuts descent by um, hatchet blade was hewn off almost completely, like this, you see, But a clean line, you see, not an accident, a measured surgical cut, but not surgery as we know it for what possible medicinal purpose might be served. I tried, as one does, not to register shock or morbid fascination, as one does, my eyes unfocused, my senses fled, startled to the roof of my skull, and then off into the ether like a rapid vapor, indifferent to the obstacle of my cranium. Whoosh, clean slate, tabula rasa, terra incognita, where am I, yet still my mind's eye somehow continuing to record in detail that poor ruined hand slipping my Master Card into the you know that thing that roller press thing which is never mind here in london that poor ruined hand imagine i know nothing of this hand its history of course nothing I did know, well, I have learned since through research, that Kabul, which is the ancient capital of Afghanistan and where once the summer pavilion of Amir Abdur-Rahman stood, shaded beneath two splendid old chinar trees, beloved of the Mughals, Kabul, substantial portions of which are now great heaps of rubble, was, it was claimed by the Mughal emperor Babur, founded by none other than Cain himself, biblical Cain Who is said to be buried in Kabul, in the garden south of Balahisar, in the cemetery known as Shohada e Salahin? I should like to see that, the grave of Cain, murder's grave. Would you eat a potato plucked from that soil? Um, She goes on. Uh, I'll just skip. Um, While I am signing the credit card receipt, I realize all of a sudden I am able to speak perfect push to, and I ask the man, who I now notice is very beautiful, not on account of regularity of features or smoothness of the skin, no, his skin is broken by webs of lines inscribed by hardships, shirakos and strife, battle scars perhaps, well, certainly the marks of some battle, some life unimaginably more difficult than my own, I ask him to tell me what has happened to his hand, and he says, I was with the Mujahideen and the Russians did this. I was with the Mujahideen and an enemy faction of the Mujahideen did this. I was with the Russians. I was known to have assisted the Russians. I did informers work for Babrak Karmal. My name is in the files if they haven't been destroyed. The names I gave are in the files. There are no more files. I stole bread for my starving family. I stole bread from a starving family. I profaned, betrayed according to, according to some stricture I erred and they chopped off the fingers of my hand. Look, look at my country. Look at my Kabul, my city. What is left of my city? This The streets are as bare as the mountains now. The buildings are as ragged as mountains and bare as bare and empty of life. There is no life here, only fear. We do not live in the buildings now. We live in terror in the cellars, in the caves, in the mountains. Only God can save us now. Only order can save us now. Only God's law, harsh and strictly administered, can save us now. Only the Department for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice can save us now. Only terror can save us from ruin. Only never-ending war save us from terror and never-ending war save my. They are stoning my wife. They are chasing her with sticks. Save my wife. Save my daughter from punishment by God. Save us from God, from war, from exile, from oil exploration, from no oil exploration, from the West, from children with rifles carrying stones. Only children with rifles carrying stones can save us now. You will never understand. It is hard. It was hard work to get into the UK. I am happy here in the UK. I am terrified I will be made to leave the UK. I cannot wait to leave the UK. I despise the U.K. I voted for John Major. I voted for Tony Blair. I did not. I cannot vote. I do not believe in voting. The people who ruined my hand were right to do so. They were wrong to do so. My hand is most certainly ruined. You will never understand. Why are you buying so many hats?
2: <laughs> um,
1: later in the play, this woman uh, goes to Kabul uh, right before Clinton bombs the uh, uh, terrorist training camps in Hust. And, uh, she's in the city of Kabul when the bombs fall. And, uh, her husband and her daughter in London are informed that she's been attacked by, uh, a crowd of angry, uh, people in, uh, angry Kabulis who, uh, beat her to death. And the husband and daughter go to Kabul to, uh, reclaim her body, um, it then turns out that things are not necessarily uh, what uh, they seem at first. The daughter goes into the streets of Kabul in a burqa looking for her mother's body and uh, immediately gets into trouble, and she needs to hire a guide to help her through the city. So she hires an old Tajik. The Tajiks are, are the second largest ethnic group in Afghanistan. Uh, Karzai is a, is a Tajik, and so are many people in his government now. Uh, most of the Taliban are Pashtun. Everybody knows this now because I don't have to explain this much. Um, she hires a guy who's, a, who's an old man, uh, his name is Khwaja Aziz Mandanabash and he's a poet and a Tajik and he hires himself out to her. He rescues her from trouble with uh, uh, religious police and, uh, and hires himself out as a guide. And uh, uh, he speaks and writes uh, poetry in Esperanto. And at one point uh, she asks him, he also speaks English because he spent a lot of time in England, and she asks him how he came to write Esperanto poetry. And this is what he tells her. When I was 24 years old, I had a good wife and a sweet little girl. I sold vacuum cleaner parts, and I was a socialist. A poet must be a thinking man, so I was a socialist, as thinking men often were in those days. But not a communist, no, for what is the world without Allah in it? Fitna, fitna, disorder, misery, madness. In 1973, Afghanistan had a go at democracy, and it was the PDPA, the Communists, helping Prime Minister Daoud to overthrow Zahir Shah, so I joined them. And Zahir Shah went out, and all the reforms commenced, women literacy campaigns, elimination of the veil, too much, too fast. And then there was internal dissent in the PDPA, the military against the intellectuals, and old Daoud was killed, bad, bad, 1978. One thing and then another, and I was sent to Poli the prison, And my sweet wife and child went to London. She had family there. The ICRC helped. It had nothing to do with politics. Someone wanted the vacuum cleaner shop. My savings. I was in prison for six wretched years during the uprisings, the Soviet invasions. Babrak Karmal was a communist, but when the Soviets put him in, he doesn't let me out. Why? Who can say? It was an appalling time. Dr. Najibullah replaced Babrak Karmal and let some of us out. And that was 1986. He cared for the people, Najibullah, though he was KHAD, secret police, and he tortured, they say. He was Pashtun, but still not a bad old bastard. My cellmate in prison had been incarcerated since he was 30 years old in 1937, so he was, when I met him in 1978, a very old man. He would die in Policharki, I would imagine he has died. I told him I wanted to learn English, emigrate to London, join my family there. He told me he knew something much better than English, an international language spoken in every country on Earth. I had never heard of such a marvel. When my cellmate was young and free in the cosmopolitan 1920s of old King Amanullah Khan, Kabulis had been more sophisticated, and my cellmate as a boy had learned Esperanto. Who would not want to be able to speak the world's language? He was a good teacher, a good patient man. I dream of him from time to time. He was, unfortunately, mistaken about one important thing. Perhaps in 1937 the world had been learning Esperanto, but in 1986, when I arrived in London, speaking only Dari, Pashto, and Esperanto, no one could understand me. (laughs) I had written 300 poems in prison, all in Esperanto. I find that I have an ear for its particular staccato music, with its regular system of affixes attached to simple roots, connoting verb, place, opposition, I love its modern, hyper-rational, ungainliness. To me, it sounds not universally at home, but rather homeless, stateless, a global refugee patois. Sidante an la gardeno mi audis bruan, vidante sin an la gardeno mi vocis alsi. Vokite si estis tute kovrita nego sidante attendante mi audis It's nice, no? It was created by a Polish Jew, Zamenhof. He believed that until we could speak to one another in a mother tongue which draws from us our common humanity, peace will never be attained. When I write in Esperanto, I am transported to a time when such a thing as a dream of universal peace did not seem immediately crazy. And not even the news that yet another child has trod upon a landmine or has been caught in crossfire can disperse the dove-like murmuring sounds of it. I am moved to compose another lament in Esperanto, another hymn to peace. So those are the things from uh, Homebody. Um, Right now, I'm working on a new play. Uh, it's called uh, The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism with a Key to the Scriptures. Um, <laughs> and uh, the lead character is a, a political columnist who's gay, who uh, is Italian-American, and he writes um, a, a column in the voice of a, a Jewish character that he's invented called The Intelligent Homosexual, um, who is a dramatist. And... Uh, um, I started working on this a long time ago, and, and it's, it's uh, becoming complicated because I'm writing sort of simultaneously a play in which a book figures and I'm writing the book at the same time. So I don't know what's going to happen to this. Maybe it will all wind up being completely unproducible. But anyway, um, uh, the first chapter of the, of the book, the first column is called Waking Up, and I thought I would just read uh, two or three pages of it. The intelligent homosexual is midway through his 40th year. I have been observing him all his, all my life. He is busy with his life's work, a massive book running to many volumes entitled, The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism with a Key to the Scriptures. He has been writing this book day after day for 40 years. Since parturition, he's been writing it. He knows it to be incompletable. He knows he will die writing it. He knows he is working himself to death, though he does not want to die. Every book he reads is fed into this book, which is insatiable, if it makes sense to call a book insatiable, and if you If you've ever read a really long, hard book or tried to write one of your own, you know it makes sense, insatiable. If it reaches his ears, it goes into his book. Every droplet of conversation he overhears, and he is an inveterate snoop, a habitual eavesdropper, a nasty habit he deliberately acquired years ago to enhance his professional capabilities. He is, embarrassingly, a dramatist. Every casual exchange between strangers on a subway goes into his book. Every idea filched from friends goes in. His lovers chance observations about anything in bed or out of it. An elegant, British friends, shocking deficiencies in personal hygiene, the tricks he uses to catch the attentions of very young children, his nightmares, the death throes of his dearly beloved go into the book, newspaper accounts of calumny and torture, his weight, his bowels, his bibliomania, betrayals, loyalties, losses, generational shifts, night sweats, lapses in judgments and ethics and taste and kindness, film and television, wasted, irretrievable hours, missed and misspent opportunities, laziness, cowardice, the lyrics to a thousand Tin Pan Alley tunes, one of his less secret addictions committed indelibly to memory. So come and enlighten my days and never depart. You only can brighten the blaze that burns in my heart. The panic over a face remembered and a name forgotten. Well, you get the idea. Did I mention green, grinding green envy of other's successes, deep sorrow over the vanquishing of the valiant, overwhelming financial affrights and expensive exhausting psychoanalysis, his list-making compulsion? This book is his attempt to write the meaning of his life, to narrate life into coherent history, theory even, doomed to certain failure at best and at worst, the whole thing revealed at the final terminal moment before his soul, if he has one he's not sure, leaves his body, the whole thing a mistake, a misunderstanding, socialism slash capitalism having been the wrong polarities, the wrong dichotomous premise from which dialectically to proceed, and perhaps even dialectics itself, wrong, wrong, outdated, and wrong. I should pause here to explain why I call the intelligent homosexual the intelligent homosexual. I trust everyone present will know why I call him homosexual, which preferences, predilections, propensities, politics, peccadilloes, and sexual practices position him categorically as such. Though I myself am homosexual and have been watching homosexuals all my life, even sleeping with more than a few of them, I don't feel adequate to define the word homosexual, which is both readily understood and incredibly complicated and controversial. If you don't know what homosexual means, there are tens of thousands of volumes of Available on the subject, ranging from the grittily behavioral to the abstrusely abstracted. These last are written by extremely intelligent homosexuals called queer theorists. My homosexual is intelligent, but not extremely intelligent, not a queer theorist. He is merely a queer in search of theory. Pity him. To call our homosexual an intelligent homosexual is simply to note in passing that he is defined primarily by his desires and the tricky identity into which these desires have inserted him, and that adjectivally his desire-based identity is modified, so to speak, by a mind which clamors futilely for attention, stands steadfast, wind-whipped, and forlorn against the gale force of his endlessly raging libido, his hunger, which seeks to efface everything, to rub and abrade everything it encounters into silky, silent, unarticulated smooth to caress with urgency, ardency, muscularity, to caress contrariety, dubiety, and ambiguity into finely sifted dust and ash, dust and ash spumed into the gentle, rarefied air of eternity, being eased, pulverized, atomized past any gathering back, and misted joyfully, lyrically, into oblivion. Every homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, and every other shape, stripe, and variety of sexual seeks this and this alone, not nihilism necessarily, though some do seek that, and you best not date them, but dissolving, disillusion, oneness, if you will, the big embracer embraced, love, in other words, love. um, Good. That's it. Um, I thought I would conclude just by uh, reciting a poem that I wrote for a children's play, and I like to recite it, um, so I'll recite it now, Um, and then I'll stop. Uh, Here it goes. Uh, The universe exists because of opposites and tension, a fact we sometimes overlook, but here deserves a mention. For every action, there's another action to oppose it. It's common sense, for life is tense, and everybody knows it. Inside the heart of every star, there's thermonuclear fission resulting from the constant state of atoms in collision. Hydrogen to helium, a force that pushes out 10 billion years of blowing up, is what a star is about. The star would not exist. It would be blown to smithereens with so much inside pushing out lest something intervenes and something does for pulling in is gravity, of course, which does the trick of holding in the thermonuclear force. So one force pushes out while one is pulling in, and let's all thank our lucky stars that neither one can win. For when the tension ceases and the totter doesn't teeter, we'll all be painfully aware we've lost our solar heater. We will either freeze to death or get blown to Jehovah, depending if the sun becomes a black hole or a nova. And on that day, I'm sad to say, all life abruptly stops, but there's five billion years before it shrivels or it pops, so don't despair. Instead, reflect upon the stellar state and on the fundamental fact that stars illuminate. From grains of sand to giant stars, all things share one condition. The world we see would never be except for opposition. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Very much for all of that. This is wonderful. It is entirely inappropriate for me to ask the first question, but I cannot resist. You <laughs> have no choice in the matter, um, Mr. Kirshner. When 9/11 happened, your play must have been in rehearsal.
1: We went into rehearsal. We were cast in June. Uh, I was in Ireland when on 9 11, um, standing on a beach in the middle of uh, a rainstorm, watching my niece play uh, in the surf, and uh, we heard it on a car radio, um, and it took us seven days to get back uh, home. Um, and uh, I think we went to rehearsal about three weeks later. So we were... How did you feel about this <laughs> being a prophet? oh well oh, oh. no. and, and um i don't feel particularly uh prophetic i mean i think that uh um you know, it was sort of an incredibly strange coincidence that I had written this play about Afghanistan and, and that it was already, you know, slated to go up. Uh, and the play touches on some things that that seem kind of prescient. Um, given what happened, there's a a line that's been quoted a lot when one of the characters, an Afghan woman who's yelling at, uh, the British woman says, you know, if you love the Taliban so much, why don't you bring them to New York? Don't worry, they're coming to New York, which used to get a very different kind of response when it was first written and then after 9-11. Um, you know, but it's not really uh, prophecy. I mean, we all knew that Osama bin Laden was operating in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, the World Trade Center had been, um, an attempt to blow up the World Trade Center. It happened in 1993 in New York. Um, Clinton's sort of, uh, inept, uh, um, attempt to, you know, uh, get revenge for the embassy bombings, uh, 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 by firing missiles into this kind of abandoned, uh, ostensible terrorist training camp in Khost, in Afghanistan, uh, uh, was, you know, an acknowledgement certainly that, that America knew, uh, that, that, uh, our appalling neglect of Afghanistan and the fate of the Afghan people had turned the country into, um, a zone of complete chaos in which someone like Bin Laden could operate with, uh, complete impunity and, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, I think that you know the the whole sort of uh, doctrine so you know um dear to the American political right that you can sort of um Cauterize certain trouble spots in the world as a huntington dog, you know, that they can, that there's a, that there's a, uh, you can declare rogue nations and sort of, uh, set them adrift and then just protect yourself, you know, insulate them from the rest of the world is transparent nonsense. I mean, it's been the case that Afghanistan has been exporting various kinds of trouble to the world since the world, uh, uh participated so heartily in the destruction of, of, civilization in Afghanistan. First the Soviet army and then, uh, America and American arms merchants. Uh, And, um, you know, so it wasn't really surprising. I mean, the country has been, uh, the country, the area has been at the center of world uh, events for, uh, you know, at least since the 18th century and, and before, and uh, and and it always will be. It's just geographically positioned to be. It's the intersection of the world in a certain sense. And um, so I don't think there was anything really prophetic about it. I mean, I think it was just, uh, uh, you know, um, I think anybody who writes about political subjects is, is is likely to say things that then, in you know, unless you're just, you know, completely. Uh, missing the point of everything, you're likely to say things that will then turn out to look sort of uh, as if you knew in advance that something <laughs> was going to happen. But in this case, I think it was just, um, you know, uh, uh, the writing the play was my way of, of responding to uh, the uh, anti-WTO movement, the uh, no, sort of misnamed anti-globalism movement, which I think is an exciting political development um, and a desire to sort of shift my focus from domestic politics to international uh, politics, partly in response to that and into the response to the shan- changing political landscape. And uh, I think it was just a kind of a weird thing that it happened to be a country that we were then shelling. I mean, when we started rehearsals, the Taliban were in control of Afghanistan. And when we opened, they were gone, or not gone for good, but at least had, had vanished for the time being. And uh, it was a hard thing to do a play in those shifting circumstances. But the play held up really well. I did a, three years of research before I wrote it. And, uh, and I think I got a lot of things right. So it was, uh, it, I don't know, that's, that's my answer to that question. <laughs> you have to sit down. No, I <laughs> don't. No, I don't. Uh, did you
0: enjoy this? I mean, I, I think you gave a brilliant answer, and it was really splendid about this coincidence. Did you get a certain feeling about, my God. An extra thing. <laughs> it's a dirty question. You don't have to answer. It's it. It's a mean question. Um, no, then we'll withdraw it. You can well, in a way,
1: no. I'll be I'll be honest about it. Um, sure, you know, in a certain sense, uh, yeah. I mean, I have I have aspirations to write. Um, I don't want to write controversial plays in the sense that that uh, I, I think play uh, playwriting is. I'm not a, a sensationalist. I don't set out to just shock. For the sake of shocking, I, I like to think that the plays have depth and complexity, and I work very hard at them, and I try to make them as multi-layered as I'm capable of making them. Uh, and in a way, doing a play like Homebody, which is a pretty dense, complicated, very long play, and 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 uh, not a response to 9/11, since it was all written before 9/11. Um, uh, the circumstances in which it was produced in New York were really hard on it because audiences came in in the middle of an American military operation, um, directed, uh, um, you know, in Afghanistan. So, uh, that made for kind of fraught circumstances and, and I regretted that in a way. And, you know, sort of, you could see on days when audiences would come to watch the play and the, the media coverage was, you know, kids are flying kites again in the heights of Bamaru and, you know, everything's fine in Kabul. Uh, because of American uh, sort of uh, optimism and and a willingness to forget what happened the day before yesterday, uh, you would see audiences come in and sort of listen to the play and think, well, why are we listening to this because everything's fine now in Afghanistan? And then days when suddenly it wasn't so fine, the play would take on, you know, when Daniel Pearl was murdered, that week was uh, the hardest week for performing because people came in, Really, sort of devastated and heartbroken, and, and as the situation in the Middle East has ha, had worsened in the last few weeks of the play's performance, uh, it became a, a more tense and difficult atmosphere, and it's sort of not optimal in a way for the reception of a play. But I also, I, I, it's nice to feel that you're sort of um, writing something that that is of the moment, uh, and and uh, so sure. I enjoyed it. I mean, Angels in America had its first uh, complete premiere at the Taper. It opened two days after Clinton won the election for the first time, and the cover of Time magazine was a picture of Ronald Reagan turned upside down with the picture, with the caption, you know, turning uh, Reaganism, standing Reaganism on its head or something wonderful and, you know, dream on. Uh, (laughs) And that, that felt great. I mean, that felt, you know, sort of timely. So, yeah, I mean, it's...
0: All right, I'm going to let you off the hook, and I'll get to the real part of this program. Which one of you would like to, to start asking a question? You can sit right down there. Well, I'll start.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, Michael, fine. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, just listening to the sections from the play that you read, it's clear that, uh, yeah, if you all want to move over and maybe we can move that thing, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Michael, um, go? Um, just to... Just, uh, just listening to the sections that you read, and you, you mentioned you spent three years uh, in research uh, on the play. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, why you do research. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> did that help anything? <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 and, <laughs>
0: Mm. You're upstaging
2: me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you do research and what kind of research you do, uh, you know, to come up with, for example, the list of things that are in that shop, right, or all the initials that the man who knows Esperanto sort of tends to know. I mean, sort of. How do you know what kind of research you're going to need to write the play, and then I guess how do you know that you have a play? Uh, sort of in the midst of all that research. <laughs>
1: hmm? um, when I have the idea for writing a play, um, I start to buy books. I buy books. What? Five-stay at McCaubert. uh Bookstore. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute sort of disease of mine. I love buying books. So I start to, buy, I start to accumulate a library uh, whenever I decide that I'm going to write about a subject, even if it's way off in the... In the future. Um, and, I, and I start to make a little section of bookshelves uh, that are sort of about that play um, as, as the idea is kind of bubbling. And um, um, I usually don't start researching uh, in terms of actually reading the books that I've purchased um, I, uh, until um, I'm. Sort of have an idea, kind of a sketchy outline of what the play might be about. Uh, and then I start reading. And I usually read for, I'm not a very fast reader, and I read um, for about six or eight months. And, uh, um, or longer if need be, depending on the subject. And uh, at some point I can't stand not writing anymore. And the whole time I'm reading, I'm taking notes, I keep notebooks, and I just write everything down that I, you know, read that seems useful to me. I have no idea. They're they're completely disorganized and all over the place. Little uh, lines and ideas and possibilities come, and I just sort of start sketching it out that way. And then at around, usually it's been about eight or nine months so far as the sort of average, uh, I begin to think, okay, I could actually write a scene now. It's usually the first scene. And uh, and then I'll do that in the notebook and sort of, you know, with one eye shut and then close the notebook and run away from it for a couple of weeks, assuming that it's going to be terrible. And it almost always is. First scenes are frequently unusable, um, almost always unusable. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I feel that uh, any idea will work as a play if you work it hard enough and and diligently enough and sort of know what you're doing. And I've been doing this now for 15, 16 years, so I feel like I have a certain kind of uh, uh, technique that I can rely on that will help turn it into a play. I know that it's going to be really uh, an appalling mess at first. I know it's going to be immensely long. Homebody was like six hours long when we first, uh, the first reading of it was five hours long. It's now a, a tidy three hours and 23 minutes. Um, and uh, um, you don't really know that it's going to work. Uh, the great thing about being a writer is that nobody ever has to know if it doesn't. If I ever write a play that I think is just so god-awful that I, I don't want anybody to know that I've written it, I'll throw it away. And nobody ever has to see it, um, but usually I found that I, that that if if I get to the point where I'm really t- willing to commit the amount of time uh, that it takes to research a subject, I've already got a fairly good idea that will turn in that I know will turn into something. Usually, the ones that are kind of misbegotten at the beginning just vanish. That you, you sort of have a little idea, you write it down somewhere, and then it just falls by the wayside. Um, there there are, I always have like five or six ideas that I kind of toy with and drop, and then there are a few ideas that just last and last and last and last. Some of them are, are now 10 or 15 years old, but I know that I'll get around to writing them eventually, and... Uh, and, and so that's sort of the, the thing. You know, and it's always a struggle between uh, the amount of information that you accumulate by researching and, and, and not wanting the play to sound like, you know, pages being turned. Slowly in a very quiet library, and uh, and and it's a struggle. And when you're dealing with the subject, when I started writing Homebody Kabul, n- nobody knew what Kabul was. They thought it was Homebody, you know, uh, somebody who made shoes, and and uh, everybody called it Homebody Kabul, and nobody knew where it was. And it had a great deal, and part of the reason it was five and a half hours long was that a lot of things had to be explained. The only real changes that were made in the play before its New York premiere were that some things simply were not necessary to explain anymore because by the time uh, the play opened. There was a separate section of the New York Times every day devoted exclusively to Afghanistan. So that degree of familiarity with the subject made for a, a, an easier time for me. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think you know, it's great to to have that stuff so that I can say something like uh, a name like Najibullah or Babrak Karmal. Most people aren't going to know who who these people were but it, it's, it it adds a certain degree of verisimilitude to the uh, uh, kind of uh, um, reality grit to the to the sound and the feel of the characters, and it also piques interest. I think people the names sort of lodge, and sometimes for no reason at all you 'll hear a name or come across a name and decide to go on the internet and look it up and see you know because these are all immensely fascinating characters. the whole uh, revolution that that Quad is talking about uh, uh, Daoud, the cousin of Zahir Shah, who's now in Italy, thinking about coming back to Afghanistan, although he hasn't shown up yet. Um, uh, that that revolution is something about which a really great play could be written. It was all in the '50s. It involves the Dallas brothers and the whole sort of transformation. I mean, the, the beginnings of the seeds. I mean, the, the seeds were sown then for the. Uh, Nightmare situation in which we find ourselves today, and all during the Eisenhower administration. And it's a it's an amazing subject. I mean, uh, uh, the beginnings of the Cold War and the way the Cold War played out in Afghanistan. And Zahir Shah himself is a is a is a character of Shakespearean dimension. I mean, his his the the palace revolution that overthrew him is really fascinating. And depending on which uh, Afghan person you talk to, you get a completely different sense of what happened then. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's set in. Uh, it's like the War of the Roses. I mean, it, it was an incident that that set in motion uh, um, this this uh, tragedy of, of of epic proportion uh, that eventually culminated in, I think, in 9/11. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: now, did you learn Esperanto specifically to write that poem?
1: <laughs> no, I I don't know Esperanto. I got a I got a, uh, I mean, it's also you know everybody. I mean, you're, you're all. People from Princeton, so you all know this, I'm sure when you do research, there's always this kind of weird, uh, there are spirits in the world that guide you to, you know, you'll suddenly stumble across in a used bookstore the book that you were looking for and couldn't find, or, you know, you'll flip open a page and there is the answer to, you know, you know, unified field theory or whatever it is you're looking for. I mean, and, and, uh, I do think that there are these kind of weird moments of, I mean, I'm an agnostic, so I don't know, but, uh, I think that, you know, Occasionally it seems that there are sort of bibliographical angels that guiding <laughs> us, and I was I was uh, my brother lives in Vienna and I was starting the work on the second act of homebody at the uh, University of Vienna. I was just using the reading room instead of sitting and writing yeah. and uh, I was walking uh, uh, through the Hofburg the the uh, city palace of the uh, 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 of the Habsburg emperors. Uh, on my way to my brother's apartment and, and there was a little sign that said, uh, uh Institute for esperanto <laughs> <laughs> um, And, uh, and I went up the, like, eight flights of stairs and, uh, opened this little door and there was this very ancient Viennese woman who was completely shocked to see an actual human being <laughs> walk into, uh, this thing and, and I had already known that I wanted to, to use Esperanto and uh, she had little in, uh, English Esperanto dictionaries and, and tapes and things so I got them and I, and I sort of uh, made up the poem and then I brought it back to her and said is this how How, how do you like this and she, said, you know, she corrected things about it and it's not a very good poem, but it's good <laughs> Esperanto, <laughs> um, and it was wonderful because the room was has been there since the before World War II. Apparently, yeah. it was closed down during the Anschluss, um, and there are all these ancient posters on the walls of all these uh, me- international meetings of Esperanto. A green star was uh, the Esperanto uh, logo, and it was. Uh, you know, clearly this incredibly powerful utopian dream born of of the horror of World War I, uh, that the world could not find a language that would replace uh, the specific languages of each, you know, uh, ethnicity and uh, geographical grouping, but... But a, a shared language that we could, you know, and it's, of course, it's very West-centric and so on. It's a combination of romance language and so on. But, although he, Zamenhof did a lot of sort of putting in Urdu and things. It sounds like kind of bad Portuguese, I think. Um, <laughs> and it didn't catch on and it's kind of heartbreaking. You know, Shaw left all of his money to the Esperanto yeah. Society in yeah. England. I mean, it was a thing that had a great uh, appeal for people. And, and especially these posters, it really was tremendously, uh moving. And then a, a day later I was wandering uh in another part of Vienna and I ran into a bust of Zamenhof that some other Esperanto society put up in a whole other different part of town. So there was definitely something going on. Um, and uh so
3: yeah. Now in addition to Esperanto there are I mean multiple languages in this play French and Pashto and
1: German Russian German Russian Arabic.
3: medical discourse. Arabic. The apparently universal language of Sinatra also right and what were you after in using all of those languages in this particular play?
1: Well, uh, it's a, the, the monologue was the first thing that I wrote, and I wrote it as a, for a friend who just said, write me a monologue of uh, a, a British actress, Kika Markham, who wanted an hour-long monologue, and I'd never done it. It's not a, a form that I have really been drawn to particularly, but I thought I would try it and, and see what it was like to do it. And, uh, and I knew that I wanted to write about Afghanistan at that point, and I found the, again, sort of by luck, this guidebook, the right. historical guide to the city of Kabul, which is really beautifully written. The author, Nancy Hatch Dupree, is still alive and well and living in Peshawar, uh, near the refugee camps, and she's been there all for decades now. Her husband, Louis Dupree, was an Afghan specialist at Princeton, I think. Um, and, uh, um, she's a, uh, a wonderful writer, and it had a huge impact. And the, and the language is is delightful in the mm-hmm. guidebook. And I think it sort of inspired this kind of nutty way. That, am I too soft? Sorry. Um, wow. <laughs> um, sorry about that. So I uh, I I think that in part, I mean, the part of what happens in that monologue is a, is a person discovering this kind of um, Orientalized, romanticist version of a city that's made entirely out of words, um, and and falls as much in love, in a sense, with the words mm-hmm. as uh, uh, at one point she comes across a sentence that's a sentence in the guidebook. Of obstre- uh, they're talking about some people who were obstreperous worshippers of Zoroaster, and and she goes on about how much she loves that phrase. And I mean, uh, it's it's about a world made of words, and uh, and. Um, in a sense, I think that I mean there's a there's a moment in the third act of the play where this is kind of explained. There's a that uh, a consideration of of Afghanistan as a passing through place of of a fantastic variety of languages, not only of spoken languages, but of various economies and currencies, um, uh, including the arms trade, the heroin trade, um, uh, the Soviet arm, you know armies, uh, nomadics, people, refugees, and so on. Um, and that, that, uh, it's about a, a sort of a calamitous clashing of language. The play is, for me, I mean, I'm a person with very strong opinions about everything. And one of the reasons I think all my uh, adult life I've gone back to Afghanistan over and over again is that it's a place that confounds any opinion. You have to uh, approach it with a certain degree of humility. I think the great uh, crime um, uh, committed by the West and the Soviet Union in in addressing itself to uh, uh, Afghanistan and many similar uh, places on Earth uh, and many other cultures is, is a kind of an arrogance and, and, and a presumptiveness that, that leads to um you know holocaustal uh um, fatality figures ultimately. And um Uh, I felt that this was a play, you know, I'm I'm a big believer believer in in big theory, in in meta-theory. I think that it's uh, indispensable for human beings. I don't think we can live without it. But anyone who's, you know, lived at the end of the 20th century knows the great dangers of big theories and big ideas. And uh, this is a play like Angels, I think, that wrestles with, you know, what we do, given that we can neither trust big theories, nor dispense Mm -hmm. with them. And I think that that's part of what the play is grappling with. It's about recognizing the difficulties of communication and understanding. So, you know.
3: When you and I were walking over from the restaurant tonight. (laughs) Are we going to do it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we were talking about the end of the world and um, just sort of chatting about it (laughs) as we (laughs) are strolling from here. And we thought, well, gee, should we talk about that tonight or not? And um, then I listened to your beautiful reading. And you were very interesting in the images that you, I mean, there's so many things you could have read. And then what you did read I found extremely interesting. And things that that came out, for example, even in your very optimistic poem, you know, neither one can win. Came in as a rather resounding, beautiful phrase. You talked about Esperanto, the common humanity language that didn't, that 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 couldn't possibly work. You brought up, of course, the grave of Cain, which is my one of my, I think, favourite real images in your play. Um, And I guess you know, you talk about you know that Afghanistan, you know, confounds any opinion. And I, I wonder if your ideas of why you needed to write the play changed once you'd finished writing it, and then once. Um, certain events happened in the world where you are now, having lived through the beginning of writing the play, researching the play, birthing the play, um, and having 911 in the aftermath happen. Um, where are you now, and have you changed? And, uh, well, you know,
1: I mean, I spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time. I never got to Afghanistan. I had a ticket, actually, oh. for Peshawar for October 1st, which I had to ah. cancel uh, after 9-11. And I'm still waiting for the CIA to notice that and, and call me and say, excuse me, but what were you going to do when you got there? Yeah. Um, that would I, be a fun one, uh, yes. Although, Another play. That, talk about optimism. I mean, that the CIA should notice something like that when they've <laughs> uh, uh-huh. <laughs> look at the things that they missed. <laughs> What um, they
3: missed uh, you and Muhammad Atta. Yeah, Muhammad
1: yes. Atta. Congratulations, your yeah. your visa, which is like the most <laughs> appalling thing because yeah. it was not only appalling in that the INS is you know saying to this person who's responsible for the deaths of you know thousands of people you know congratulations you know welcome to the United States. Yeah. But also that what it tells you about what is routinely done at the INS that this man's uh, uh, visa was approved in uh, you know. Uh, April of last year and just sat in an office for yeah. seven months and then got spit out by a computer, which means that, you know, people with completely legitimate reasons for wanting to be in the United States have to wait routinely seven or eight months before they get their letters. I mean, it's just, it's ghastly on all sorts of levels. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's been a very confusing time, you know, when when uh, uh, the, you know, Fake president of the United States. Uh, um, well, I guess he really is the president. I mean, look at the damage he's doing. You can't do that if you're completely uh, fake. That's right. But um, the president select got a, a started shelling. <laughs> well, oh, you've, oh, you've all heard that. That's not. I didn't make that up. That's what's like all over us Anyway, um, when he. Uh, uh, Started shelling Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, I thought like a lot of people, um, on the left, uh, you know, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I had spent years reading about this country and the state that, that the cities were in and thought, you know, this is, uh, obscene, uh, and it cannot conceivably result in anything other than more, uh, uh, mass death in Afghanistan. And, and, uh, and I thought the Taliban are, are incredibly fierce, uh, dedicated, you know, ideologues and fighters, and they're not going to abandon these cities. And then, of course, they did. They just disappeared. So, you know, what do I know? I mean, it's, uh, and I don't think the Bush administration knew. I mean, nobody knew. I mean, it had, of course, been four years of drought. <laughs> and mass starvation. Uh, and the Taliban were, I think, in part weakened. Nobody really knows exactly. I mean, they may have just vanished into, you know, the northwest frontier, and they're regrouping, and they plan uh, to come back. They're clearly not completely gone. The Taliban are a very mixed bag, and I think it's even possible that some of them decided to abandon the cities to spare the cities American airstrikes. Um, uh, and I'm not sure that those cities would have been spared American airstrikes if the Taliban not, uh, agreed to leave. I mean, uh, the Taliban are awful people, but they're, it's a very, very, very complicated, um, chapter of all of this that will need time to be written because it's, uh, you can't, what's being written about it mostly is, is, uh, uh, far too simplistic, I think. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I think it's great that the Afghan people have been liberated from the rule of these fundamentalist theocratic thugs. I don't like fundamentalist theocratic thugs in Afghanistan or, you know, other places. Um, and uh, um, I'm – So, you know, what happens now, of course, I have no idea. And what's amazing to me is that none of us have any idea. Does the Bush administration have a plan for the future of Afghanistan? Is it the plan that they're saying publicly? What about the big gaping holes in the plan that they're saying publicly? Because they clearly have never articulated a vision for how to actually rebuild the country, nor has the world at this point articulated a real vision for how to bring Afghanistan uh, from the uh, uh, pit of chaos into which it it sank. Um, and, uh, And is there the political will to do it? what will happen in that country if America stays as a military presence, you know, and so on. I mean, it's an incredibly complicated But also what you're
3: doing is by what your play asks us to do, I think possibly post 9-1-1, but even if one were a student of the area pre 9 is that if you're looking at extremist and fundamentalist Islam as a movement beyond the borders, obviously, of Afghanistan, but in an entire region of the world, then one has to grapple with one's own sense of what you believe in, ultimately, um, as a world view. And being someone who deals in the meta-theories of life, I, I just thought I, I had to ask you. Well, you know, I mean, uh,
1: I before uh, 9-11, I had big fights with my Afghan friends. I have a, a, a guy who did all the Pashtun and Dari translation in the play. Me, and we had lots of arguments about this. My feeling was that, that there was an incredible degree of optimism that could be drawn from the lessons of what, what has been happening in Iran, uh, a progress that I, uh, um, put a lot of, uh, stock in and, and hope is not disrupted by, uh, various upheavals, uh, going on in the area right now. Um, I don't believe in, in, uh, um, the intractability of, uh, and the inevitability of Islamic, um, Uh, uh, radical fundamentalism, um, uh, as, as, you know, the sort of clash of cultures idea. I think that that's nonsense. Um, I think that, that suicide bombers and, uh, and guys hijacking planes and driving them into skyscrapers are, uh, born of levels of intense desperation and misery and poverty and outrageous um, injustices that have not been ad- addressed and i believe that the addressing of these injustices and the raising of uh of living standards around the world um, will bring about uh tremendous change uh and and that th- and there is nothing in islam that uh is in any way shape or form uh uh that, that more, um, predisposes its adherence to violence than, than in any, uh, um, monotheistic religion that claims that it has the single way to salvation. And Judaism and Christianity certainly have, you know, their own histories of, uh, of, uh, bloodshed to, uh, to account for in that regard. And, and, uh, Muslims have no sort of special, you know, uh, monopoly on, on religious-inspired violence. And I actually don't believe that what's going on, for instance, now in the Middle East has anything to do with, with this religion. Uh, I think what it has to do with is, uh, is, uh, oppression and, uh, and, uh, um, occupation. So I'm, uh, I'm optimistic in that sense if the world would find the political will to address the uh, fundamental um, uh, circumstances of life in the 80% of the world in which there are grotesque disparities of wealth and poverty and and huge percentages of the population live in in terrible desperation and boredom and no medical care and so on and so forth. I believe that a lot of what seems sort of uh, like the great clash of civilizations that our Republican leadership has now decided is, you know, is, is sort of the explanation for everything, uh, is, is that that's nonsense and that it's really the same old thing. That, you know, uh, great, uh, injustice produces great evil. And, uh, if you want to get rid of great evil, be just. And, uh, and that's, that's the answer to it, so. So you are an optimist.
3: That's very good. It's how you ended your reading. What, I wanted to know that. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go for where I would be. On the other yeah, hand, I you know, think we're, we're all, all going to be bad in a couple of Yeah, <laughs> no, I say, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we ultimately agree on that front. All right. Now, do you
0: agree to accept questions from sure. the audience? All right, fine. Oh, As the panel? Oh,
2: we could go on all night. We, we the We definitely could, so we I should definitely know, put it out we there. We
1: don't
0: have anything. If anyone in the audience wants to say, Please breathe from the diaphragm and speak clearly so we can hear you. Because there are no microphones. We have microphones. Oh. oh my God! Oh, oh my God! <laughs> Gentlemen, mm. look at that. All right, fine. Yes, go ahead.
2: <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I wonder what part of human history can be based on to give you that uh, optimism.
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> 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 we will be here all night. What aspect of human history gives me a uh, uh, cause? Well, <laughs> well. Still here. You know, <laughs> we're still here. I mean, maybe not for long, but, you know, so far, so good. Um, I don't know. I mean, I believe, you know, I'm not a determinist. I don't believe that progress is a given. But I do believe that there has been a great deal of progress. I think that the great tragedy of human life, it seems to me, or one of the great tragedies of human life is that people learn by Holocaust. And I think it would be wonderful if we didn't. It would be great if people could anticipate Holocaust uh, and say, if we don't act in such and such a manner, uh, we are going to engender Holocaust. That isn't the way that the human race has proceeded. It's mostly proceeded by making terrible mistakes, seeing thousands, if not millions, of people die and then learning a lesson. But people do seem to learn lessons and there seems to be a very kind of fitful progress. Um, I'm, I'm a uh, uh, a, a flag-waving American in one sense. I believe uh, in the uh, awe-inspiring example of uh, American democracy. I think it's a great tragedy, again, that uh, um, Americans have not learned to care whether the standards that we um, uphold for our own citizens are applied to people elsewhere, and I agree with Pat Buchanan, a sentence I would think <laughs> never have imagined I would be saying um, that this country is in danger, and Gore Vidal, I suppose also that this country is in danger of becoming more and more less and less of a republic and more and more of an empire. But I think that there's been uh, that that uh, that the human race has shown um, not only astonishing resilience, but also an astonishing capacity for uh, reinventing itself and for creating uh, um, a more and more, um, habitable and humane world, and and you know the dangers that we face now. The fact that the pace of technology is outstripping our capacity for self-invention uh, is is a scary thing. But you know, one has to uh, hope that we'll learn before we all perish.
2: I, I'm sorry. I just want to comment one more time. I feel you are you are contradicting yourself. A moment ago, you okay. said about the occupation. <laughs> of Israel occupation of Palestinians, why Israel, who were the victims of Holocaust, now cannot feel the pain of those being occupied? Well,
1: I mean, the great, I think that's an incredibly important question. Um, you know, suffering doesn't necessarily teach you to be a, a better person. Suffering also traumatizes uh, and, and suffering damages uh, people who suffer, sometimes there are great spirits like Primo Levi, uh, people who, who endure incredible, terrible suffering and draw, uh, astonishing lessons from it. And then, uh, for many people, uh, having been the victim of, uh, of persecution and oppression, what one is left with is primarily a sense of, 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 uh, an anger that can't be assuaged uh and you know uh antisemitism is a is an incredibly powerful and virulent force in the world uh uh not the holocaust was a was a culmination of of course centuries of european uh savagery directed at the jewish people uh and and the joining of of the fate of the jewish people to european colonialism in the form of zionism which is my opinion um about zionism uh is a is a is one of the ugliest uh Phenomena of of the last two or three hundred years, and uh, and it's caused a great you know I mean in a way I think that what's going on in Israel is the playing out of Hitler, and and Hitler's design not saying that the Jews are Nazis but this is the, the this evil will roll on for a long time it takes a long time I mean look at at, at African Americans in this country how long it's taken for this country to even begin to address what happened as a result of having slaves. Um, It's been, you know, 150 years since the Civil War, and this country still can't really uh, bring itself to actually address that. And we're still arguing about things like affirmative action that should – simply not be arguments anymore. So people learn very slowly. I do believe that they learn, though. I mean, that's the thing. I wish they would learn quicker. I wish I could learn quicker. People are, the psych, uh, the psyche seems to be constructed along fairly, you know, sort of flimsy and conservative principles. And, and it doesn't like, uh, change is painful for people. Um, which makes the profession of playwright possible. Um, and, uh, and possibly in some sense, some small sense necessary. But I think that, you know, I just, I also believe that it's a moral responsibility not to despair. Um, What do you do if you despair? I mean, kill yourself, you know. I mean, you always have that option, and, you know, I don't know at certain – I mean, this is a very dark time. I think, you know, uh, in in my reading, I I would have to go back to, like, 1937, 1939 as a a period of of an equivalent sort of airless uh, uh, sense of doom – People who survived World War One and saw the world sliding into fascism and World War Two, and a lot of great people committed. Walter Benjamin and Virginia Woolf committed suicide in the face of it. Um, but despair is uh, a danger. Uh, despair is the enemy of life. And I believe that on some level, um, uh, optimism is a moral duty. And uh, you know, you, so you sort of have to keep, keep going. So.
0: Ellen Has
3: Russian literature been important to you, and if so, who and what and how?
1: Um, well, I love Russian literature, and I wrote a play based on my response to Russian oh. literature, Slavs. Um, I mean uh reading Tolstoy completely changed my life. I think that that uh War and Peace and uh Nashville are the two cornerstones of my uh <laughs> dramaturgy. Um, I read War and Peace when I was 17 and uh and was completely thrilled at this book that went back and forth between narrative and sort of what still seems to be slightly bogus historical speculation, but nevertheless, historical speculation in such a wonderful, heady blending, um, and, uh, and so unapologetically, and I loved that. Um, Tolstoy is, you know, uh, greater than great, and, and to read him is always to sort of, it's like reading Shakespeare or listening to Mozart or Bach. I mean, you just can't believe that the human mind is capable of, of the breadth of that empathy. Dostoevsky is like you know swallowing glass, but also you know, um, great. And and the only conservative writer that I have absolute, total respect for. Sometimes on a good day, Saul Bellow. But you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I love Dostoevsky uh, uh, very much. As I wrote in Slavs, I love the fact that he was writing at exactly the same time as Emerson, another writer I adore, and I think there are Emersonian aspects in Dostoevsky's savage pessimism, and Dostoevskyian aspects in Emerson's, you know, sort of positivism. And I, I, uh, I love that the world contained two such spectacularly odd creatures at the same time. Um, uh, I recently discovered a, a writer, saltykov Shedrin uh, The Golovlyovs, which is now one of my favorite books. Um, uh, and then, of course, there's, you know, Chekhov, who is, you know, uh, for a playwright, uh, second only to Shakespeare in, in a source of absolute and total dismay because you... I mean, in a way, you can sort of say, well, okay, if, I mean, Shakespeare is so uh, protean and happened at such a moment in, in in the history of the language and in the history of English culture and, and used so many words and had so many characters and the plays are so epic that in a way what Chekhov does seems even, I mean, nothing is greater than Shakespeare ever, but in a weird way Chekhov almost seems to be sometimes, because you look at those four plays... Yes. The poverty of expression in them, I mean, the language is, is uh, I understand from people who speak Russian, quite lovely, but not in and of itself um, particular. I mean, it's not Pushkin, it's not, you know. Um, nothing happens in the plays, and yet everything happens. You can watch the same, you can watch Uncle Vanya every single day for your entire life. And you will always find something new in it, and it is like Shakespeare that way. And I don't think there is any other writer that has done that. So it's, and he also wrote a lot of really good short stories as well. So you know, and I love—I mean, I love the Russians. I love Gorbachev. I mean, I loved uh, his, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, his book *Perestroika*. Um, I loved seeing him on the Academy Awards. I thought that was really. Uh, <laughs> it meant something i'm not sure what mm-hmm. um you know the the i think being jewish has you know of course i have a a, a huge sort of streak of, sl- of slavism in my soul because <laughs> jews and you know slavs and jews and russians and poles and Litvaks. i mean it's that it's that you know the pala i mean and that's an incredibly important um you know part of my life i love russian music i love tchaikovsky um and so you, you know it's i I feel very Russian in in, <laughs> in some ways. So, and I'm you know I'm deeply moved by them and their 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 courage, the Russian intelligentsia in the 80s and 90s, and uh, and and the Russian people. Of course, my father is a big World War II buff, and although he was never a socialist or a communist, he was a. a You know, I grew up listening to the stories of the Battle of Stalingrad over and over and over again and the the sufferings of the Russian people as they defeated Hitler. And so, you know, I sort of grew up with uh, um, an appreciation for the uh, epic heroism of the Russians. So it's, you know, uh, I just saw War and Peace at the Met, this fantastic production, and just sobbed through it. I mean, it was just, you know, it's. I mean, music is, or whatever. And, but it's, it's a lot of the book on stage, and it's just that, 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 ag- I mean, it's a very Jewish thing, this, this, this <laughs> incredibly loving, incredibly broken heart that's at the center of it all, and it's just, you know, you know the great Russian joke? I actually, I'm ashamed, <laughs> <which one? laughs> read this in a George Will column. Uh, a, a, a Frenchman, uh, an Italian, an Englishman and a Russian die, and they all go to heaven. Have you heard this joke? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the uh, Saint Peter says, "Okay, you all were basically good people, so you get to have one wish, and it'll be granted." So the Englishman says, "I would like for my country, and the English, to become the greatest writers of novels the world has ever known." And Saint Peter says, "It's yours." The Frenchman says, "I would like my people, the French, to be the greatest painters." And he says, "It's yours." And the Italian says, "I would like my." People, the, Italian to, uh, the Italians to be the greatest writers of opera. Says, it's yours, and the Russian says, "I would like my neighbor Ivan's mule to die."
0: another question. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have one more question from the floor, and then we'll
2: come in a bit. You said you didn't write your plays to cause controversy, but um, when Angels in America came to my hometown, Charlotte, North Carolina, oh God, <laughs> it uh, experienced quite a bit. And I just wonder what you feel when it when people take an aspect of the play that doesn't really seem to be central to it and drag it out of proportion and attack you for <laughs> for it. Yeah.
1: Well, you just said it. I mean, that's uh, Charlotte uh, Rep in Charlotte, North Carolina, was yeah. sort of the place of the of the biggest. Hoo ha over uh, uh, a local production of Angels in America. This loony uh, minister who had made headlines the year before by saying that The Lion King was a, a, a work of the devil and it was teaching voodoo to American children, and Barney the Dinosaur was an agent of the devil. In both counts, he was absolutely completely correct, but not for the reasons that he had <laughs> thought. And uh, and I guess he wanted to get headlines again, so he, he decided to have the actor playing prior Walter arrested if he took his clothes off during uh, the physical examination scene. Um, because, of course, you know, Kaposi sarcoma lesions show up in the armpits and in the groin, so uh, the examinations have to be conducted, uh, uh, you know, it's a full-body examination. And, you know, the guy was just, I, I mean, a total crackpot. He was eventually, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, fired by his, uh, congregation and he retaliated by having his congregation fired or at least trying to and staying, keeping control of the church and getting rid of its worshipers and I think that was also <laughs> that battle. Um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing because it's, you, you, like I was saying about, uh, about Homebody Kabul, uh, if you write political plays, there is something great about, about writing material, I mean, that feels great about writing material that becomes part of a, of a, of an important political battle. And that Angels in America, uh, generated some controversy. Homebody did it again when the, uh, temporary chairman of the NEA suspended a grant and said he wasn't going to give it and then they wound up giving it to, uh, homebody, they denied it to an African-American performance artist named William Pope-L um, who made who used his last NEA grant to make a 14-foot uh, cardboard white penis and walk around Times Square. And that was apparently, right, right, right. that was too much for the Bush administration. You know, I mean, you can <laughs> certainly uh, imagine the reaction that W had to that. It's probably the moment that he choked on that pretzel. Um, <laughs> he did. What? Um... I love that those dogs... That's my favorite thing, I think, in the last eight months, is that that his proof that he wasn't unconscious for very long is that the dogs hadn't moved. <laughs> and, which, I think you have to... Two questions that you have to ask yourself. A, did they not move because they had seen him face down on the floor a lot, and they weren't particularly alarmed? Maybe they didn't move because they don't like him very much, and they didn't care that he might have... Anyway. Um, I... Uh, I think it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's frustrating because, because uh, it invites a kind of uh, a stupid know-nothing response to the play. It turns the play into a kind of a, of a pep rally. The minute that happened in Charlotte, of course, the thing sold out. Uh, We were all hoping that the NEA was going to deny the grant to homebody Cobble because it would instantly sell out everywhere it was scheduled to run. Uh, The ride is now slowly because, as usual about most things, they are very, very slow. That's why they call them conservative. Um, uh, uh, They sort of are beginning to figure out that it's not a a good move to do this because they always sell tickets. And I, I don't know, I mean I, uh, I'm, I'm happy about it and also distressed by it. I believe that the plays, uh, I don't know how long these plays will last, but they, Angels has certainly outlasted the contretemps in, in Charlotte. It did good, uh, the, those, those idiots that, that, uh, they did what, what reactionaries always do. They first tried to get the police to go and arrest the actors and then somebody reminded them that this is America and that we don't do that. And so, uh, they lost on, you know, First Amendment grounds, which they always do, and then they go around the back door and pull the funding, and they pulled the funding to Charlotte Rep, but then the next year they were all defeated by Democratic uh, candidates for whatever – what is the name of the – uh, is it Mechil- uh, – Mecklenburg County, right? Um, so they all left. And I got to see Charlotte. It's a really nice town. Um, <laughs> I think it's great uh uh to be part of those of those struggles and I also think that it's not optimal for the play and uh you know but you come to realize that a lot of people will look at a play and it'll have a lot of different uh you know um I've never had a play that felt completely railroaded by one of those uh uh sort of sensationalized struggles and so I'm I'm basically okay with it I mean I think it's uh you know and the struggle of, for censorship and funding i think are you know two incredibly important questions facing american democracy and they've been they were incredibly badly mishandled by the clinton administration um and and of course have vanished into thin air as has so much that's uh, of real moment and consequence to the american people during the years of the uh, bush uh, uh the restoration and uh and i'm uh <laughs> Um, you know, I, I'm ho- these things will reemerge. They're, they'll they'll certainly reemerge and maybe they'll reemerge after Jesse Helms has gone to his reward. Um, and uh and and the NEA will get refunded. I mean it's certainly uh an absolute catastrophe for American arts that the NEA has been allowed to wither in the way that it has. It makes life um, uh absolutely uh almost insuperably difficult for young artists of of every description uh in this country i was helped uh, tremendously by the NEA grants that i got and I as the artistic director of one of the country's largest regional theaters i'm sure you might want to <laughs> chime in with this it's been a it's been a complete victory of the right uh the destruction of the NEA and uh, uh I- it's not completely it's not, destroyed it's not completely destroyed, yeah. m- but the battle at this point is not being taken up with any. Uh, right. Although it's very, enemy.
3: very interesting is that um, because Bush does have other fish to fry, he has sort of turned his head away from trying to destroy the last remnants of the m- NEA and seems to think, well, um, I'll leave that alone. And if I don't really notice what's going on, you know, I'll, I'll be able to deal with other things. And in fact, we're hoping that because he's not this dismantling the rest of it, that there's a future to build it back up. Right. And I'm he, an and optimist, I too, you
1: see. Yes. Well, no, I believe, I think that it will. And he's got a wife, after all, whose favorite author is Dostoevsky. His favorite passage is the Grand Inquisitor from the Brothers that. She's about a librarian, that. she's
3: not a theater-goer, however. Let's <laughs> <laughs> remember that. Before we
0: get into former speakers in this very room, uh, Mrs. Cheney, Oh, Lord. Yes. I I, I can't. Well, I must tell this. We got a message, all the faculty members, that a very important person was coming. Very, very important, and that there would be extreme caution. And well, I was giving a play over in the chapel, and my office is right over there. And we were not to be allowed to move. And. Who is coming? Who is coming? For two days, everyone was terrorized that Hitler was going to be resurrected and brought to Makash 50. It was Lynn Cheney, And I was so angry that this woman who single-handedly started this whole demolition of, of was being touted and feted in the office. I said, if I, I, I don't know to whom I was writing. It was a little email thing. I said, "If I'm prevented from passing from my office to my rehearsal at the chapel, I'll make this a legal case." <laughs> 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 well, Mrs. Cheney came, and some people came to see her, and I got from my office to the rehearsal. and I was very happy. I, too, am an optimist. <laughs> I think now what we must do is, to, if you have any questions you want to address to Mr. Kushner, please come up. Let's thank him for a wonderful <laughs>